Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 176 with Bryce Hoffman. We're talking smart decision-making using some military secret sauce called red teaming. So you're going to learn, one, how to confront lies in your organizations and the lies you tell yourselves, two, a quick way to check critical assumptions, and three, a key question that will help you make better decisions in under 15 minutes. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep176. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our handy resources. One I'll highlight here is the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course. And these are excerpts from my Enhanced Thinking Collaboration Training Program, which helps teams slash through waste in their work week. And so you'll get some of the most bite-sized actionable tidbits from that to your inbox one a day over 10 days to cut through wasted time so that you can do more cool strategic thinking or just get home earlier. That's there along with other great stuff. Now, here is Bryce's story. Bryce G. Huffman is a best-selling author, speaker, and consultant who helps companies around the world plan better and global leaders lead better by applying innovative systems from the worlds of business and the military. He's the author of the 2012 bestseller, American Icon, Alan Mulally, and The Fight to Save Ford Motor Company, which has become a manual for CEOs looking to transform their corporate cultures. Before launching his international consulting practice in 2014, Hoffman was an award-winning financial journalist who spent 22 years covering the global automotive, high-tech, and biotech industries for newspapers in Michigan and California. He writes a regular column on leadership and culture for Forbes.com and regularly appears on television and radio shows in the U.S. and internationally. For more information, check out BryceHoffman.com. Here's Bryce. Bryce, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Great to be on with you, Pete. Well, so interesting background you have. So you are a civilian and yet you chose to enter the Army's Red Team Leaders course, which is made for military officers, right? Correct. What's that story? Well, in 2015, I became the first civilian from outside government to graduate from this course, which is for senior military officers. And the reason I entered that course, Pete, is because I'm a former financial journalist turned management consultant, and I was looking for a system to help companies stress test their strategies to overcome what I think of as two of the biggest evils of business today, groupthink and complacency. And I heard about this amazing program that had been developed by the U.S. Army after it ran into some pretty serious problems in Iraq and Afghanistan that seemed to me to hold the solution to those problems. And this program was called Red Teaming. As I understood it, it was a system that was designed to make organizations think critically and use contrarian analysis to look at their strategies and plans to make better decisions. And also, just as importantly, to kind of uncover the truths that are buried inside the organization and kind of held down by the hierarchy or by the prevailing wisdom. 
sounded like it's something that could be really valuable to business. So I called the Pentagon and asked them if I could take the course. And they, of course, said, no. <laughs> Are you kidding? But I'm a persistent guy, Pete. And I kept asking and I kept asking different people in the military until finally that no turned into a yes. And I spent the first half of 2015 with an amazing group of U.S. Army majors and one Air Force major who were in this program for, to become red team leaders, all of whom were you know, combat veterans who had served multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you know, I was the guy who wasn't wearing green on the first day of class. <laughs> well, and did they subject you to any physical fitness components as well? You know, it's not part of the program, but, uh, you know, peer pressure is an amazing thing. I found myself in a CrossFit box for the first time in my life uh, several times a week, and uh, I'm a better man for it. Oh, that's great. Using the lingo. Yeah, box. That's so cool. It's it's so, well, that's so cool. And I really love you just taking it to the next level there. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Robert Cialdini, who wrote Influence Mm -hmm. and the latest Presuasion. In terms of, okay, you know, you study something, you're interested in something, but you're going to go wherever, you know, the cutting edge leads you in your study of the area. So kudos to you, my hat or beret off, if you will, for that. Thank you. And so then can you lay it out for us a little bit? So red teaming is this set of mental tools or how would you define it precisely? It's really a set of planning tools and analytical tools that you can use as an organization to stress test your strategies by breaking them down into the assumptions they're based on and then challenging those assumptions to make sure they're really true and likely to remain true under all circumstances. So that's one thing that makes red teaming really different from most business tools is this element of deliberate challenge. Then there's a second component, which is basically another set of tools and techniques that are designed to help you look at the different ways that your plan or strategy could unfold under different future conditions. Because let's face it, Pete, right now, the future has become very hard to predict. We live in an age of incredible uncertainty and complexity in the business world in particular. And so there's a whole set of tools and techniques to say, here's our plan. Here's how we hope it will turn out. And here's how we think the business environment is going to be, or in this case, in its original form, the military environment is going to be. But we don't really know. So let's run this trap out against a bunch of different scenarios and see how it looks. So that's another component. And then the final component, which is this whole set of groupthink mitigation tools and what the Army calls very colorfully liberating structures that are designed to basically cut through the hierarchy and get at the truth wherever it resides in the organization. Because, look, Pete, we all know anybody who works in a company knows that there are people who are not sitting at the top of the house who know what's wrong who know how to fix things, who know how to do what the company does better, but they're too often, their voices just aren't heard. You know, instead of the grease, too often the squeaky wheel simply gets invited to find uh, career opportunities elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so red teaming has built into it a whole set of tools and techniques to kind of use things like anonymous feedback to get good ideas to surface in a way that doesn't pay attention to rank or status. And that lets people look at the ideas rather than the personalities around the ideas, which is very important in a hierarchical organization like the military, but it's also important in a hierarchical organization like a corporation. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm excited to dig into some of these tools here. And and I guess I'm wondering, 
Well, first and foremost, I guess it just seems like companies, teams, individuals, and work groups just should, you know, be doing this sort of stuff anyway, and, you know, more or less systematically or subject to a program, but often they don't. Maybe we could start there. So why aren't folks doing this naturally anyway? How does group think and complacency kind of crop up in the first place? Well, you know, Pete, you made a really good observation there, which is that people should be doing this more or less. And the problem is, is that everybody knows that, but they default to less. Okay. So I'll give you an example. Once I graduated from the Army's program in June of 2015, I started working with my consulting clients to, to put these ideas into practice. And one of the first companies that I started working with was a global investment bank. It was actually a nation's sovereign wealth fund. I can't say which one. And, you know, when I explained some of these tools to their senior managing partners and managing directors, a couple of them, you know, came up to me during one of our breaks and said, you know, a lot of what you're telling us we should be doing, we actually on paper are supposed to be doing. Oh. But the problem is, is that we don't actually do it because there's no system. It's just a box to check. You know, for instance, there's a red teaming technique called a key assumptions check. I mean, this is one of the simpler red teaming techniques that I talk about in the book. And I explain how to use all these tools and techniques in the book. And in a key assumptions check, just kind of simply put, is you take your strategy or you take your plan, or in this case, you take your investment proposal and you break it down into, as I said earlier, the assumptions it's based on, and then you examine those assumptions. And he explained to me that, you know, we have as part of our written policy that we're supposed to do a critical analysis of the assumptions that our investment strategies are based on. But he said, this is how it generally plays out. Three or four of us who are in charge of a program will be sitting around the table. We'll get to that point on the list and we'll say, have we looked and done a critical analysis of the assumptions here? Yes. We'll all nod at each other and we'll check that <laughs> box. You can't do that with a formal red teaming process because a formal red teaming process has steps that require you to actually do that. And so some of the tools that are in the red teaming toolbox are things, like you say, that companies should be doing anyways, but they're not doing. And, you know, Irving Janus identified groupthink for the first time decades ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is old news, but anyone who's worked in a company of any size knows that groupthink is as alive and well today as it was when Janice first started writing about it decades ago. Okay. Well, so maybe before we dig deep into the tools, could you give us, so we heard a little bit about the before in terms of U.S. Army having some challenges. Could you also give us a glimpse of the after in terms of folks who have applied some of these principles to great effect? Yeah, so in the military, the best example of all, to me, of red teaming in action that people are familiar with is the 2007 troop surge in Iraq. So that was one of the first big visible products of red team thinking in the military. You know, unfortunately, a lot of the things that red teaming is used for in the military are very classified. And so I can't talk about them. But this is one that I can. And if you look at what happened in 2007, the president of the United States, President Bush, you know, gave the military the task of figuring out how to withdraw, how to pull out of Iraq. And General Petraeus, who was an early adopter of red teaming, an early fan of red teaming, used this approach to kind of come up with an analysis that was quite contrarian, you know, in the sense that it was very counterintuitive in a certain sense, which is that if we want to pull our troops out of Iraq, the thing we need to do is send more troops into Iraq. Indeed. Because we had been slowly drawing our presence down. And as we were slowly drawing our presence down, the insurgency was rising. 
So General Petraeus, after having red teamed this, said, no, here's what we need to do. If we want to pull out, we need to send 30,000 more troops right now, and we need to just bring law and order to the country, give people a chance to catch their breath, separate the warring factions, allow the Iraqis to kind of get their foothold and police themselves, and then we can pull everybody out. And he developed a step-by-step strategy to do this. The problem, because this example, the thing I love about this example, Peter, is it shows both the potential and the danger right. that you face when you're red teaming, is the problem is it was so successful. If you cast your mind back, the amount of violence in Iraq just dropped off dramatically after this, that it was so successful that after a few months, the politicians in Washington said, oh, that's great. This worked wonderful. Let's just pull everyone out now. And General Petraeus tried to say, wait, whoa, 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 wait, this is not the whole thing here. You know, we're not quite there yet. But everyone was like, ah, no, let's declare victory and pull out. And then we pulled out and everything fell apart again. And that's how we got ISIS and where we are today. So my point is that shows you how it can work and how it can fail if the organization doesn't listen to the red team's, you know, results. Now, let me give you a business example. One of the companies that I've worked with that I can talk about is uh, Dale Carnegie and Associates, the personal development company. Yes. And they have a new CEO who came in and uh, was given the task of revitalizing the brand and making it as relevant in the 21st century as it had been in the 20th century. And so he put together a comprehensive turnaround strategy for the company. And he asked me to lead his executive team through a red teaming analysis of this plan before they turned it over to the board of directors for final approval. And what we found when we did this analysis is there were two or three major elements of the turnaround strategy that they thought were addressing key strategic targets, you know, key strategic objectives of the turnaround that in fact were fixing what wasn't broken, not what was broken. And so the plan was modified majorly to account for these things. And they've been very successful to date in executing on that. But, you know, if you talk to any of the executives there, what they'll say is that, you know, we would never have seen these things until they started becoming problems in the execution if we hadn't red teamed it first. So red teaming is spending a few extra minutes, hours or days, whatever's merited based on the complexity of the plan you're looking at and how important it is to your organization up front to save you from months, years, or a lifetime of anguish, red teaming is a little uncomfortable. Red teaming is not something that's warm and fuzzy. It's designed to push your envelopes a little bit and to challenge your assumptions by design and to make people a little bit uncomfortable because that's how you get at the hard truths that organizations need to address in order to be successful. And, you know, the thing is, is you cannot do those things. You can choose not to do those things. You can choose not to red team. But if you do, your competitors are one day, maybe not tomorrow, but someday going to do it to you if you don't do it to yourself. So what I tell companies is that by using these tools and techniques, by red teaming yourself today, you can make yourself, your company, one of the disruptors rather than one of the disrupted. And I think everybody would rather change themselves than have changed forced upon them by external events. Before we dig into the three subcomponents there, can you share the emotional discomfort piece? Are there any best practices, ground rules, stuff you do to help mitigate or navigate that whole emotional landscape there? 
Absolutely. And it's an important part of red teaming. And, and in fact, I, I devote a whole chapter in my book to talking about what I call the rules of red teaming. And chief amongst them is that, you know, red teaming is something that walks a fine line. Red teaming is about being skeptical, but not being cynical. It's being critical, but in a constructive way, not in a destructive way. And it's, you know, to put it bluntly, one of the challenges of a red teamer is to provide this critical analysis, this contrarian analysis in a constructive and collegial way and not fall into just being a smart ass. Right. Or to receive the criticism and not crumble or be like, oh, that jerk face hates me or what does he know anyway? Absolutely. But, you know, one of the beauties of red teaming is that by making it a process, I was just in a Unfortunately, I can't say what company this was, but I was just talking to the CEO of a Silicon Valley company that everybody would recognize. Sorry, not the CEO, one of the founders of the company. And he was telling me, you know, the thing that I find attractive about this red teaming approach is that right now, when one of the senior leaders of our company says, hey, even though we're uber successful and we're making billions of dollars right now, at least on paper, maybe there's a way to do what we do better. Whenever we do that right now, he said, it's personal, Mm -hmm. right? There's an implied criticism of the way things are. But he said, if we make red teaming part of our strategic planning process, then you have that same discussion as a matter of course. And if it's just part of your planning process, then Mm -hmm. it's not personal anymore. And that's exactly, I told him, you've hit the nail on the head. That's the value of this is because – You could be Cassandra. You could be that lone voice in your organization that sees where the peril lies and bangs your head against the wall, screaming about, you know, turn the ship around, you know, type of thing. Or you could make this part of a process in your organization that allows people to point out ways to do things better. You know, and just to digress very slightly here, Pete, it's important to understand red teaming is not just about finding faults and finding weaknesses in plans. It's also about finding opportunities that you've missed. Because when you start to do a red teaming analysis, what you often find is that the plan is good, but there are things about the plan that could be made better. And so it's also about finding those upsides as well as the potential weaknesses. And you know, if you do that in a systematic way, then it can be done in a very constructive and collegial way and not in a personal, threatening, political sort of way. Oh, I think that's so good. When it's just a matter of course, that's sort of how you operate, then it does. It makes all the difference. And it it also reminds me a little bit of just sort of following up with people. I used to have a challenge with this when I was, you know, leading groups. It's like I made the mistake on both sides of the equation. If I only follow up with someone when I perceive that something may be at risk or behind, then my follow up, my outreach to somebody I'm leading, becomes associated with, I think you're not doing your job. Exactly. Whereas if I have just a regular follow-up on the calendar, it's like, hey, you know what? Fridays at nine o'clock, this is when we just sort of talk about progress and anything I can help you with. It changes everything. Absolutely. And that's exactly, Pete, you got it. That's how red teaming works when it works best is by just making it part of the system. You know, another way that I explain it to people is that Red teaming is not a better planning process. It's a process that makes your plans better. So it's oh, not designed go. to replace what you're already doing. It's designed to complement it. And it's not a threat to leadership is the other thing because it's designed to simply give leaders another basket of data 
another set of things to consider before they make a decision. And that can be a powerful thing, particularly in hierarchical organizations. You know, there's a story that the red teamers like to tell in the military that was told by a four-star general. And at this point, a four-star general is the highest rank in the U.S. Army. And he tells a story how a few years ago when he was promoted from three-star general to four-star general, the military has what they call pinning on ceremonies when you get promoted as an officer where some other officer pins on your new rank. And so another four-star general was pinning his four-star on. And as he pinned it on, he pulled him close and whispered into his ear and said, congratulations, now no one will ever tell you the truth again. Because that's what happens when you find yourself at the top of the pyramid, right? And yet good leaders want to hear the truth. So once again, red teaming is designed to help them hear the sometimes uncomfortable truths that exist in their organizations. I mean, I'll give you another example of something that we do when we work with clients that just gives you kind of a taste of this that's really effective. And and most of our clients are just kind of amazed at just this one exercise because I really believe in sharing people's pain. So, you know, not to make it like, like, you know, you guys are the only ones who have problems. I always tell people, you know, I used to be a financial journalist and I spent 22 years in the newspaper industry watching it collapse around me. And one of the things that I know from that experience is that the newspaper industry told itself all sorts of lies. You know, it told itself the lie that people couldn't live without us, for instance, that even if they got upset with us and canceled their subscriptions or even if they became fascinated with this new shiny thing called the Internet, that they would come back to us at the end of the day because they needed us, that we were something like oxygen that they could not survive without. That was one of the lies we told ourselves. Another lie that we told ourselves was that people didn't care about who was first with information. They cared about who had the most in-depth analysis. And so it was okay if people could get their news and information from TV and radio and the internet first, because we would provide them with this deeper analysis that they couldn't get anywhere else. Now, those of us who had not drunk the Kool-Aid to the dregs knew that these things were not true. And yet everybody acted as if they were. So I tell this story to companies and I give all of the people who are in the audience, a three and a half by five card, and I give them the same pen, the same colored pen. And I say, write in block letters one of the lies your company tells itself. Oh, yes. And then I collect them and I read some of them. And it's always pretty amazing to watch the reactions on the face of the senior executives in the room because they always, they don't get angry. They get frustrated that they're just hearing these things for the first time, mm-hmm. you know. And so if you think about places you've worked before, I bet you have some good ideas about how that might have played out. Yeah, that's so good. Yes. And I think it's true Like once they have kind of welcomed it for real, the input, and there is that safety of anonymity that comes about with the note card, then that's great. So, well, you just shared one excellent tactic. I'd love it if you could dropping out several of these inside each of these three areas, the breaking down of assumptions, firstly, secondly, the looking at how things can unfold, and three, the group think busting approaches. So on the assumptions part of this situation, you know, I mentioned this technique called a key assumptions check. And there's, there's a fairly formal process to it that I talk about in the book, but there's also a quick and dirty process that you can do right now. And the way that it works is, as I said, Pete, you just take your plan, take your plan or your strategy and break it down into all the stated and unstated assumptions that it is based on. 
think of an example. I mean, just give me you know an off-the-cuff example of a plan that a business might uh, be thinking about doing. Oh, sure thing. Well, I would even like to zoom in a little bit closer to, you know, maybe not so much like the CEO level, but, you know, a manager level. Yeah, where you can absolutely use these things at any level where you have the ability to make decisions. So I guess I'm thinking is like, maybe we need a plan to better service our customer base. Let's talk about that. Again, so the red teaming is not designed to create the plan. It's designed to create the plan better. So how might you better service the customer base? Maybe you make a decision that we're going to open a call center in India okay, to make sure that our customers have 24-hour access to customer support. All right. So there's a lot of assumptions in there. Yes. There's assumptions that your company is facile enough with navigating the global economy that you can open a call center in India. Mm-hmm. There's an assumption that you can train workers there to answer your customers' questions in an effective way. There's an assumption there that your customers won't be put off when they get someone with an Indian accent answering the phone, even if they say their name is Steve. Mm-hmm. And there's you know, an assumption that this is going to move the needle enough in terms of your customer satisfaction to make it worth the investment. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other assumptions, but those are just some of them, for instance. So you would make a list and then you would ask yourself a series of questions about each of those assumptions. Questions like this. Is it logical? Is this accurate? Is it based on preconceived notions or biases? Is it based on historical analogies? And if so, are they relevant analogies? What has to happen for this to become true? How much confidence do the planners have that this will happen? And if it becomes true, will it remain true under all conditions? And if it proves untrue, how would that alter the plan? So you can ask yourself those questions and just kind of go down the list and adjust the plan as necessary once you see the results of that. Because I guarantee you, when you ask those questions, you will illuminate a lot of things about your plan or strategy. And I think you'll also sort of illuminate a plan of action because I have a feeling that several of those questions, the answer is like, oh, we're actually not quite sure yet. Exactly. And that's one of the things that we often find when we do red teaming exercises with companies is that just the act of red teaming something reveals that there's a whole bunch of data that's missing. Okay. That people just think is there. And then when they actually go to look for it, they find it's actually not there. We actually don't know these things. Oh, that's so good. So we've broken down those assumptions, asked some key questions, and then that gives rise to finding that information. And I imagine that's a whole nother ball of wax in terms of, do we do a survey? Do we interview some people? Do we observe behavior and how it unfolds? Do we consult outside experts, et cetera? Absolutely. And so that's a whole discussion that you can have there. You know, and I want to be clear, Pete, because this raises an important point that I think needs to be said. You don't want to red team everything. Red teaming is for big, important decisions, for setting strategy, and for solving complex problems. You know, if you want to open a new office in Chicago and you want to know what a fair price to pay is for commercial, classic commercial real estate, you know, on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, you don't need to red team that. You can call up a commercial real estate agent and find the answer. Mm -hmm. So red teaming is only for those things where the answers are not obvious or where the stakes are high. And in those situations, it is worth taking that time and effort. But, you know, there are red teaming tools that you can do in as little as 15 minutes, too. 
I'll give you another example of one that your listeners can use right now because it's a great story. And in my class, we had a major who was from Delta Force. And he asked early on in the course, this stuff sounds great, but you know, I'm often leading teams in the field, super high stakes where we don't have a lot of time to plan because, you know, we literally get called by the president and told, go here, do this. And he's like, what's the minimum amount of time that I need to red team something? And our instructor said, the minimum amount of time that you need to red team something is 10 or 15 minutes. And he said, let me explain to you what I mean by that. He said, if you're given a task to go into this village and secure this compound, for instance, he said, you can gather your guys together on the outskirts of that village and say, hey, everybody, take a knee. And then you can just spend 10 or 15 minutes answering one question. If this all goes to hell, how's it going to go to hell? All right. And businesses can do the same thing, right? Before you make a decision. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be a decision that's your decision. If you're a frontline manager, if you're a middle manager and you're given the task from on high to execute, you can gather your team together and say, okay, guys, here's what we've been asked to do. But before we do this, I want to ask you guys, let's spend 15 minutes and have a discussion here. If this all goes south, how's it going to go south? Now, what do you get from that? What you get from that is two things. One is you might find some weaknesses in the strategy or plan that you can come up with ways to address proactively so they don't become problems. In other words, kind of patching the holes in your plan. But the other thing you get from this is signpost. Because as you have this discussion, things will occur to you like, you know, to go back to my example, well, we could go into this village, but, you know, when we get to that intersection up there, somebody could be standing on the rooftop and raise the alarm that we're here and then all, you know, everything could break loose. Well, if you had that come up in your discussion, then as you're entering that avenue in, in that village, you know, one of the things you might take away from that is let's keep an eye on those rooftops up there. If we see anybody moving there, let's assume we've been discovered and act accordingly. Businesses can do the same thing. You know, having that discussion, you can surface some things that could go wrong and say, guys, if we see that happening over the next six months as we execute this, let's hit pause and try to adjust it so that we don't end up where we don't want to be. Excellent. Thank you. Well, it's so funny. I'm thinking my wife and I are looking at buying a home soon. And as you say that, that really shines a bright light on what matters most and is worthy of our prioritization. I'm thinking, let's really make sure there's no hidden, nasty, expensive repair <laughs> yeah. that throws all of our financial plans into chaos. <laughs> there's a great analogy that you've given right there. Pete in this because I talk in the book about the different ways that different you can use red teaming in different situations. And one of the ways that I talk about, and I, this again is a real world example of investment banking firm down in Texas that has using red teaming to make their investment decisions. And one of the senior partners there, the one who came up with the idea of using red teaming, they use a kind of simple version of one of the most powerful red teaming tools, which is devil's advocacy, where you basically take a strategy or plan and you try to argue as strongly as possible that the opposite is true. How do they use that to make investment decisions? Well, here's what he explained to me. He said, we have a team of guys that were hired by myself and the other senior partners. And we hired them because we know that they know how to make money. And yet, the way that most investment firms work is one of the partners will come up with an investment thesis, and then we'll have a meeting of the team, and they'll present their thesis and show us how they think we can make money off of this deal. He said, but I realized these guys know how to make money. If they're going to take the time to come to me with an investment strategy, 
then clearly they've already figured out how they can make money off of this. Or otherwise, they wouldn't have wasted their time. Mm-hmm. So instead of having that discussion, we use that time to ask this question. How could we lose money off of this deal? Perfect. And we have a robust discussion about the ways in which this deal could go south and the ways in which we could end up losing money off of it. And then when we've had that discussion, we kind of take a straw poll and say, do people still feel, knowing these risks, that the upside of this is worth it? And that's how they make their investment decisions. They've been much more successful than a lot of their peers using this strategy. Okay, excellent. So we talked about talking assumptions. We talked about imagining how it can go awry. And so thirdly, how do we go about doing that groupthink busting? So the groupthink busting is one of my favorite parts. And one example, I mean, we already talked about is, is the example of just asking the question, what are the lies we tell ourselves? But there's a lot of deeper techniques. And one of the ones that I think is one of my favorite ones is called weighted anonymous feedback. And there's a couple of different ways that I talk about in the book to do this. You can do this through a system called dot voting. I'll explain that one. It's probably the most interesting one. So one of the things that, you know, and you use these tools and techniques are all complementary to each other. So let's say that you were looking at an important strategic decision as a company, as an organization, or is it, you know, even a division within a company or, or what have you. And let's say you've used your key assumptions check to figure out what the assumptions are that underline the strategy. Well, one thing that we often do is then use a technique called dot voting to evaluate those assumptions. And what the way it works is this. I ask folks, look at this list of assumptions here. Don't discuss it. Just look at it yourselves. And I usually have a, the assumptions printed out on a sheet. And I give everyone, you know, those little colored sticker dots, you know, mm-hmm. like that use for filing and stuff. Give everyone a certain number of dots. And I say, and I explain this in more detail in the book, but the idea is you tell people, figure out the assumptions on this list that you think are most likely to prove untrue in the execution of this strategy. And I tell people, you know, and we set the number of dots based on how many assumptions there are and how many people there are. There's a whole system, again, that I talk about in the book. But let's say you have seven dots. You can vote all seven of those on one assumption if you feel really strongly that that is going to be the thing that's going to go wrong and destroy this strategy. Or you could vote for seven different assumptions that you think are risky. You know, you can use your dots however you want. We do that, and everyone gets a chance to go up and place their dots on the list. Nobody knows who placed what dot. And when it's done, we tally the totals, we collect all the lists, and we tally the totals of all the dots. And it's always illuminating because, Pete, usually what you see is that there's two or three or four assumptions that get 90% of the votes. And what that tells you is that those are the elements of the strategy or plan people don't have confidence in. Now, I've done this exercise in companies where before we did this exercise, we ran around the table and everybody said they had 100% confidence in the strategy or plan. Oh, yeah? <laughs> because they were saying it in front of everyone else. But when they could do it privately, everybody said, actually, we think there's some elements of the plan that are completely ridiculous and that are going to fail. So if I could ask, with the private dot voting, yeah. <laughs> to get real tactical here, is it still anonymous if people could see them in the room with their dots? You give everyone a sheet and a set of dots, and everyone gets to put their dots on the sheets. Then I collect the sheets. Okay, multiple sheets, not one master sheet. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a little hard to explain, but it's all in the book. And so that's what usually happens. Now, here's something else that has happened a couple times in companies I've worked with. We do this, and there's dots everywhere. Now, what does that tell you? What that tells you 
is there something fundamentally wrong with the plan? Yeah. That people just don't have confidence. And that was my sense the first time I did this and saw that. And I talked with some of the colonels that had developed this at the army. And I said, what does this mean? And they said, it means people don't have confidence in the plan. So I said, really? And they said, yeah, if it's all over the map like this, it means people just don't have confidence in the plan. So I went back into the room and I said, you know, hey, everyone, here's your results. They're all over the place. So now that we've all voiced this, I want to have a real heart to heart talk. Is, you know, again, like I said, this is tough love for companies. You all said you had confidence in this plan, but you've all voted for different things. Who here is going to be the brave person that's going to point to the elephant in the room and say that we actually don't believe this plan's the best plan? Every single hand went up. Okay. Bold. That's how you get through groupthink. And this is not me. This is not the army coming up with this. This is based on decades of science and research into how to overcome cognitive bias and groupthink. So, you know, one of the things, have you ever heard of the ASH experiments in the 1950s? I don't think I have. Please do tell. So this is one of the formative kind of pieces of research in groupthink, and it's scary. So this researcher, Professor Ash, did a whole series of experiments where he created a set of slides that had three lines on them. So try to imagine, it should be easy to imagine this because the lines weren't even remotely close to each other in length. Okay. One was really long, one was really short, right in the middle. And he told people that they were taking part in a test of perception and that they were part of a group of 12 people who were going to study human perception. And they were shown these slides and asked to go around the room and say which line uh-huh. is the same length as the line in the first slide, you know, which only had one line on it. In the control group, the margin of error was less than one-tenth of one percent. I mean, that's how, you know, I mean, you would have to be blind not to be able to get the right answer. But the problem is, or the, not the problem, but the fact was that most people weren't in the control group. Most people were the one person in a group of, with 11 actors who were all given a script beforehand and who were and who it was structured so that even though they went around the room and asked somebody different each time, the actors always spoke first. Mm-hmm. And after getting the first two or three right, the actors started just picking answers that were so patently obvious that you would have to be a complete imbecile not to see were wrong. And they aligned with one another. They all agreed. Yeah. All agreed with each other. And in over 50% of the time, at least once the controls, the person who was actually the subject would agree with the group, even though it was completely obvious that the answer that the group was giving was wrong. So that was one thing. But then Ash took it to another level, which is he then had one actor say, I disagree with the group. I think it's this line. They didn't even have to pick the right line. They just had to disagree. Mm-hmm. And when they disagreed 99% of the time, the subject gave the right answer because somebody else had disagreed and that gave them permission to think for themselves. That's perfect. And so I want to ask maybe a final question before I hear about your favorite things. And that is, all right, if you are, I guess the Cassandra, nice illusion there. If you are the voice of one in the wilderness who has a strong belief that, nope, I think we are mistaken here, but you're not in power, not in control. What recourse do you have? What should you do? You have two recourses. One is you can buy a copy of my book and put it on your boss's <laughs> desk or in his or her inbox, or you can do what the army teaches in our class, which is a technique. The last red teaming technique, if you will, is called my 15%. 
And it's designed to deal with the exact issue you just said there, which is that no matter how good your analysis may be, we all find times when we are in an organization that just doesn't want to hear the truth. So rather than falling victim to despair, my 15% is based on, and I don't have time to go into all the science behind it, but based a lot of organizational science that shows that in any organization, no matter how, how rigid the hierarchy is, no matter how blind the leadership is, there's always about 15% of a person's work life that they can influence themselves. Okay. And so the army's advice to officers is that if you find yourself in a division where the general in charge is just a complete idiot and doesn't want to hear the truth, focus on your 15%, the things that you can change. And maybe they're small changes, but if you make them and if the person next to you makes them and if the person next to them makes them, you can make your whole organization better over time. And so could you have an example then of, I can't get the big win right now, but I'll do my 15%. What might that look like in practice? Yeah. So for example, you know, one story, and I can't go into all the details of it because it was classified, but that was shared by one of my, our classmates was there were issues where the patrols they were doing in their part of Afghanistan were creating a lot of tension with the local population because a kid had been hit by a Humvee mm. and killed, you know, while they were playing in the street. But the commander of the unit had orders that they had to patrol five times a week, damn it. So they were going to patrol five times a week, no matter what. And this particular officer and some of his fellow officers felt that, look, maybe we should just like stop the patrols for a few weeks and let everybody's temper simmer down. And that was not an option because this person, their boss said, no, you got to do this. So what they decided to do is, you know what? We'll do our patrols, but we'll do them down this side street that nobody's ever at. Okay. Because <laughs> that's in their control. Like, hey, I'm the one in the Humvee. So Exactly. And they'd come back the day of the week they were supposed to lead a patrol and they'd say, did you do your patrol in Village X? And yes, sir, we did. But they'd drive down a back street where there were no kids playing and no danger of anybody getting, you know, mud splashed on them by the Humvee driving by or anything like that. And did it solve the problem? No. But did they contribute to slightly reducing tensions in that village? Well, they felt they did. Okay, thank you. Well, so now could you share with us a favorite quote, something that you find inspiring? I will. I'll share with you the quote that I open the book with because I think it's so important. And it's, uh, you know, kind of ancient military wisdom, but it's so applicable to the challenges of business today and explains why we need red teaming. And it's from Sun Tzu, of course. Know the enemy and know yourself. In a hundred battles, you will never be in peril. When you are ignorant of the enemy, but know yourself, your chances of winning and losing are equal. But if you are ignorant of both your enemy and yourself, you are certain in every battle to be in peril. So red team yourself and know yourself and know your enemy. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite book? I am a big fan of Team of Teams by General McChrystal. Yes. And how about a favorite tool? A favorite tool is red teaming. Sorry, but I got to say it. Sure. And a favorite habit? A favorite habit is to challenge your own assumptions. So I'm not talking about in a business context here. I'm saying that as an individual, seek out things that challenge your way of thinking. And this is not a political statement. This is just a strengthening your own critical thinking skills. If you're a liberal and listen to NPR all the time, listen to Rush Limbaugh. If you're a conservative and listen to Rush Limbaugh all the time, listen to NPR one day a week. 
Make yourself do it. And don't just get angry at the radio and turn it off and curse what you heard. Listen to it and think about the arguments you're hearing. Because if you're right, it'll hone your own observations, but it may also open your eyes to some different things. There's a lot of science that proves that the best decision makers are people who actively seek out information that challenges what they already believe. Yes. And how about a favorite nugget, an articulation of your message that really seems to get people nodding their heads, taking notes and saying, Bryce, you're brilliant. Uh, I don't know if I have anything (laughs) that powerful, but um, what I like to tell people is that I think the best way to sum it up is question the unquestionable, think the unthinkable and challenge everything. I've got the Don Quixote impossible dream in my head now. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the many services I provide. (laughs) And how about if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? They can go to BryceHoffman.com, B-R-Y-C-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N.com. Or if they want to learn more about red teaming in particular, they can go to Red Team Thinking, all one word, RedTeamThinking.com. Or they can buy a copy of my book. Oh, sure. And if you could leave people with a final challenge, if they're looking to become more awesome at their jobs, what would that call to action be? My call to action is this. Find someone you trust and ask them to look at your plans, to look at your strategies, to look at your decisions and tell you what's wrong with them. Okay. Well, Bryce, thanks you so much for this. This was eye-opening and helpful, and I wish you lots of luck with all you're up to. And you know, stay safe, and you know, don't get hacked or your secrets compromised. Thanks a lot, Pete. Really enjoyed speaking with you. I'm a huge fan of that question. If this goes south, how will it go south? It kind of reminds me of the time machine technique we discussed back in the day with Stacy Dyer as well as the opposite of the hypothesis-driven thinking that I was chatting about over on just July 2nd there in terms of what must be true for this to be a good move. This is kind of like the opposite of that. Like, under what circumstances will this go terribly awry? Such a handy question to take a breath, a moment, think through that, and get covered. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we referenced here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep176. I hope you'll push subscribe as well if you haven't already so you'll hear folks like our next guest. It's Mo Carrick. She's talking about fit matters. What are the critical components that make a job fit versus not fit? So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.